We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. The following sermon was given at St. Matthias Family Church, where Philip Jensen was senior minister. Well, as Phil rightly says, we're going to hear the greatest sermon ever preached, and it's not going to be mine. Over the course of this coming uh, year, we'll be looking at the Sermon on the Mount slowly and in detail. On previous occasions, we've gone through it in about three, four, five weeks, but this time we're going to take a paragraph at a time, and as we do so, it will open up for us a whole range of issues in life and in living, and in living as Christ's disciples in particular. But if we're going to understand any part of the Bible, it's very important that we understand it in context, and so it's important we understand the Sermon on the Mount in context, because it comes to us as part of Matthew's Gospel. It's not just a separate book in itself, it's chapters 5 to 7 of Matthew's Gospel. And so we need to see it in the context of Matthew, and when we read Matthew we find it's more context than that. That is, Matthew's Gospel has five big sections of teaching and this is the first of them. It's at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Matthew's Gospel. But Matthew keeps on pointing back to the Old Testament. He keeps saying that is where you can find Jesus. That is where you can understand Jesus. Jesus comes in the context of the Old Testament. Look with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Sorry, chapter 1 verse 22, chapter 1, verse 22. All this took place to fulfil what the Lord had said through the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah. Then across to chapter 2, verse 15, chapter 2, verse 15, where he stayed until the death of Herod and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Or chapter 2, verse 17, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Or chapter 2, verse 23. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Or over today, chapter 4, verse 14. He goes to Capernaum where he was late by the, the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, Naphtali, verse 14, to fulfill what had been said through the prophet Isaiah. Or even chapter 5.17, particularly 5.17, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Don't think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. Or after the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 8, verse 17, 8.17, just across a couple of pages there, where he's doing miracles, healing people, driving out evil spirits. And we're told this was to fulfil what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, he took our infirmities and carried our diseases. What was happening to Jesus and what Jesus was doing was to fulfil the Old Testament prophets. So if we're to understand Jesus, what he is doing, what he is teaching and what is happening to Jesus, we must see him in the context of the Old Testament, says Matthew. If you understand Jesus in Matthew's context, he keeps pointing to the Old Testament context. So if we're going to understand Jesus... We're going to have to keep on dipping back into the Old Testament to understand what it is about. Well, what's happening here in chapter 4 of Matthew's Gospel? 
Chapter 4, picking it up from verse 12, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. And 17, from that time on he began preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. When you look at Jesus' actions, they start with John the Baptist. So just a word about John the Baptist. John was preaching baptism and repentance and the kingdom of heaven in Judea, in the desert, near the Jordan. Got a map today because today requires a bit of a map on the blue with the back of it where you've discovered how many words you can't fit into little gaps and which ones you can and can't remember. But on the back of it down in Judea, you will see, is, uh, the, uh, is uh, printed towards the bottom of the map, level with the Dead Sea. It's an area, Judea. It's the area across Jerusalem and across to the Jordan River and so he is over near the Jordan River baptising people there in the wilderness. His message, chapter 3, verse 2, John's message, repent for the kingdom is near. The kingdom of heaven is near. And many people went out to be, be baptised, some of them in hypocrisy, some of them in truly repenting. Huge crowds flocked to John with his message of the kingdom of heaven coming coming very soon. He was not universally popular though because he was calling upon people to repent, to change their very life, to change their very character, to change how they were living. Jesus was baptised by him and at the baptism is recognised by John, by Jesus as the Messiah and the suffering servant and then Jesus was led out into the wilderness to be tempted as the Messiah. Now chapter 4 verse 12, when John was arrested, Jesus, what does Jesus do? He goes to Galilee. On your map you'll see Galilee is north of there. Some 150 miles or so north of Jerusalem, is, uh, 150 kilometres or so north of Jerusalem as the crow flies. Jesus changes location then, goes to his home state. Nazareth, the town, is up in Galilee. Galilee is the area up there in the north. Or, as it's known by the two older names of the tribes of Israel, Naphtali and Zebulun. For he leaves Nazareth and goes to the little town, Capernaum, which, as best we can work out, was on the Sea of Galilee. And there becomes the centre of his ministry. But why does he change location? Is it just to get away from the persecution that John is experiencing down in Judea? It's an act of cowardice that he's heading off up there to avoid being arrested himself. What, what is the movement about his location? What does it indicate? Matthew tells us it happens to fulfil what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light, those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. It's a change of location which is a little surprising at one level because he's going to the backwoods of Israel. He's going to the, the area that was half Jewish and half Gentile. Over in the Decapolis, east of the Sea of Galilee that you see there, the Decapolis, that was a Gentile territory with just a few Jews. Galilee was 50% Gentile, 50% Jewish. Down in Judea, that was the Jewish centre and Jerusalem was the great capital. He's heading off to North Queensland. He's heading off to the outskirts of 
the country where the dialect is slightly different and you can pick the slow country drawl of the Nazarenes. Peter, you remember, is accused of being Nazarene because he speaks like one, the girl at the trial of Jesus later. And from there, the dawn of the new age is to come. Well, we know the dawn of the new age, should it come today, would come from the eastern suburbs of Sydney. Here is the high point of civilization. Here is the center of the universe. He goes off to somewhere west of Mount Isa and from there the dawn of the new age comes. Well, it's a good place to have a dawn because it's so dark up there, but why is the light shining from there? It's not just because it's the backwards part of the world. It's something else than that. It's the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. That's why it's not just Galilee, but it's Zebulun and Naphtali because of Isaiah is being fulfilled. And so he starts preaching the message. The message of chapter 4, verse 17. The message which is exactly the same as John's message. John preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus preaches, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. But unlike John, Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven. Unlike John, he is the king who calls the disciples to be fishermen, fishing for men. And so the event we have there in verses 18 through to 22 of calling these fishermen to come, leave their nets, come, follow him, become his apprentices, working with him, listening to him, living with him, working so that he can teach them how they should fish for men. Uh, something bigger than fish that they're after. It's to catch people. And Jesus then travels travels around Galilee in that area from Capernaum the home base around that area to the little villages travels into each of the villages goes to the synagogues and there he teaches and preaches and starts healing he preaches the kingdom of heaven teaching in their synagogues and healing various diseases in fact the healing of diseases brings him all kinds of fame and reputation for here we see the difference with John people came to John for baptism but people come to Jesus for healing. Verse 24, we read, News about him spread all over Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, or some translations have it as epileptics, and the paralysed, and he healed them. Once you know the possibility of healing, you will travel the world to find it, won't you? People will do anything to get healing. People flocked to this man. Heard the other day of a woman, very sick woman, heard of a healing, the possibility of healing that was available to her in North America. She's there now in North America at this farm that offers healing. People will travel great distances on the promise, on the assurance of healing. And if somebody actually can but speak to a disease and it leaves, the news spreads very quickly, doesn't it? If somebody can really have such power over evil spirits, the demon possession, such power over the diseases, all kinds of diseases, popularity is bound to follow him. The people flocked to hear Jesus and his spread fame. His fame spread not only from Galilee and Syria, 
but Decapolis across the river, the Gentile non-Jewish area and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from Transjordan. Down there in verse 25 we read, the people travelled from all over Palestine. Distances, friends, long, hard distances. Remember the travelling methods of the first century. It wasn't like getting on a plane and being in America just some 14 hours, 20 hours later. We're talking of travelling on walking and donkeys and horses, winding roads. It would take days, it would take weeks to get to this man. But if you're sick, if you're desperate, if you hear of this great new thing coming in the north, they travelled. It's interesting the nature of people's desperation, isn't it? We may be the centre of the universe, but if we can get real help back in the backwoods somewhere, we'll take it. If you can invent a better mousetrap, you may build your house in the woods, but people will still find you. Or if you can cure baldness, it would have the same effect, won't it? There are certain things for which people will travel great distances, go anywhere, and they certainly did here. They were travelling to Jesus for hundreds of miles, round trips that would take weeks. Such was the fame of Jesus when he commenced his ministry. And chapter 5, verse 1, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. John's arrest was the trigger for Jesus to start his ministry up in Galilee. It was the trigger for him to move north to the place where Isaiah said it's all got to start from. Seeing the crowds was the trigger, the trigger for Jesus to start teaching his disciples. Let's look at Jesus' context a little bit more closely. Notice where he is. Galilee, yes. Zebulun and Naphtali fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. But what is it about? Well, it's about the promised land. It's about that part of the promised land which is not so much backward as under the threat of destruction and judgment and the judgment of God. For when the judgment of God came upon the promised land through the Assyrians and then later through the Babylonians, it came from the north. Oh, Babylon and Assyria are over to the east but you've got to march across a desert to get there so what they do is they travel up the river and then down the coastal area. The, the danger, the destruction comes from the north. The first part of the land to be destroyed is Naphtali, Zebulun is the north. Let me take you back to Moses. Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, led them through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, but was leading them to the Promised Land. It's called the Promised Land because it was a land promised to them, promised to Abram and to his seed forever. And it was a land that was promised to them which was flowing with milk and honey. It was full of houses and, and villages and cities. It was established, it was agricultural, it was rich. It was to the people of Israel the new Garden of Eden. Everything they could ever want was going to be in this land, in this promised land. And when Moses brings the people to this land, he brings God's promises to them, God's promises of blessing and also God's promises of curses. 
It'll be especially the blessings of health and the curses of sickness. There are other blessings. Wealth, prosperity, peace, rest. But particularly, I want to draw your attention this morning to health and to illness. Come with me in your Bibles back to Deuteronomy. Firstly to Deuteronomy 7. Jenny read for us this morning, Deuteronomy 7. Here's Moses talking to the people about what's going to happen in the promised land. Deuteronomy 7, pick it up, verse 12. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your forefathers. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb crops of your land, your grain, new wine, olives, the calves of your head, the lambs of your flock and the land that he swore to your forefathers to give you. Now pick up this promise in verse 14. You'll be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless nor any of your livestock without young. The Lord will keep you from every disease. He will not inflict on you the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt but he will inflict on them on all who hate you. It's an incredible promise. The Lord will keep you from every disease. The people of God are going to live in the land of wealth and prosperity without the contamination of death, without the illnesses and diseases and sicknesses that they have experienced when they were in slavery in Egypt or will be experienced by their enemies. They are going to live in health and wealth and peace but they're going to enjoy health and life will be theirs if they keep his covenant but come with me across to chapter 28 chapter 28 the end of the book of Deuteronomy spells out the blessings in verses 1 to 14 but then also the curses in verses 15 through to 58 the curses that will come upon them if they do not keep the covenant and commandment of God. So look at chapter 28, we'll pick it up, say, verse 21. The Lord will plague you with diseases until he has destroyed you from the land you're entering to possess. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation and scorching heat and drought, with blight and mildew, which will plague you until you perish. Or a little later on, verse 27, the Lord will afflict you with the boils of Egypt and the tumours, festering sores and the itch for which cannot be cured. The Lord will afflict you with madness, blindness, confusion of mind. Over verse 59, 59, 58, if you do not carefully follow the words of this law which are written in the book and do not revere the glorious and awesome name of the Lord your God, the Lord will send fearful plagues on you and your descendants harsh and prolonged disasters and severe lingering illnesses. He will bring upon you all the diseases of Egypt that you dreaded and they will cling to you. Here is the, the promise of the people of God coming into the promised land and it's like the promises given to, to Adam in the Garden of Eden. All the fruit of all the trees are available to him to live but if he eats of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil on the day you eat of that you will surely die. 
so the people of God when they come to the promised land why it is a land flowing with milk and honey it is all yours and you will have none of the taste of death upon you because your calves your flocks your 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 fields your harvests everything will be plentiful you will have children and you will never be sick with the dreaded diseases of death that you had down in Egypt but if you do not keep my commands if you do not live by my word well then the curses that come upon you are the very judgments of Egypt the very illnesses that you dreaded the very madness and boils the itch it all comes upon you if you reject me the promises of God were all fulfilled the curses came for the people of God did fail to honour him as God the people of Israel did fail to live as his holy distinctive godly people in his land and so God did send his curses upon them they were divided they were destroyed they were impoverished and living in poverty they came to the pain of the sicknesses that they dreaded the northern part Galilee or Zebulun and Naphtali they were conquered in the 8th century by the Assyrian Empire the people were scattered all over the ancient world only a few remained and they remained dominated by the Gentiles and they lived as captives in the land of freedom they lived no longer as God's people they lived as a pagan nation and so Isaiah chapter 9 is the promise the promise that though that judgment is hanging over them though they are under the gloom and darkness of the shadow of death yet this is not the last word God promises something new God promises a new day a new kingdom a new age when would come a Messiah for and here is the great Christmas passage which again Jenny read for us to us a child is born to us a son is given the government will be on his shoulders and he'll be called wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace and it's almost impossible to read it without hearing a piece of music in your mind it's a great promise isn't it the great promise of the new age when a king the Messiah the ruler is going to come and that new age will bring light to those who live in the darkness of Zebulun and Naphtali and so when John the Baptist is put in prison Jesus commences his ministry and the place to commence the ministry is Zebulun is Naphtali the place where the dawn will start where the new age of the light is to come out of the most unlikely place the place of God's curse will come the new age of salvation of justice and righteousness of life and of healing and in Isaiah out of the most unlikely person the nameless suffering servant beaten and killed will come salvation and life and healing and so now in this context of the cursed promised land the land that was still looking forward to the promises of the kingdom of the king and of the suffering servant comes Jesus he comes preaching the kingdom of heaven 
He comes preaching not just the kingdom of heaven, but that the kingdom of heaven is near, is at hand, has arrived, is, is come. Now is the moment. And he demonstrates it by bringing into the promised land the great blessings of God, of healing all manner of diseases and illnesses, of driving out the evil spirits and calling his fishermen to fish for men, calling them to follow him and work with them. And when he sees the crowds come, when he sees the new day dawning, when he sees that the whole of Palestine, the whole of the promised land has heard the message of the kingdom of heaven now arriving, he withdraws to a mountain and starts to teach his disciples, his fishermen, teaches them how to fish for men. That is, the Sermon on the Mount, in its context, is discipleship training. It is teaching those who are going to fish for men what the coming of the kingdom of heaven is all about, what they are to do in bringing the kingdom of heaven, in teaching the kingdom of heaven, in preaching the kingdom of heaven as he was preaching it and teaching it. The Sermon on the Mount is discipling the fishermen to fish for men. That's why, for example, in chapter 5, verse 14, he says to the disciples, you are the light of the world. Why are they the light of the world? Well, because look back to chapter 4, verse 16. Chapter 4, verse 16. The people living in darkness have seen a great light, on those living in the land of the shadow of death, the light has dawned. Jesus is the light of the world. He comes to bring the light of the world. He calls his disciples to be the light of the world. They are to be putting into operation the Jesus program. They are to be with him fishing for men. They are to be with him proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is right at hand. But how? How do you bring the kingdom of heaven? What do you say? How do you live? What is it about? In today's world, of course, we'd have a quick technology course. Two ways to live and how to share it. But that is not discipleship training of the Jesus model. The Jesus model of discipleship training is to so teach them to live this kingdom life, this kingdom of heaven life, that they will be different from all around about them. They will be distinctive. They will not be like the people who have been cursed rightly by God but will now live a righteousness as the people of God should have been living which would bring the blessings of health and prosperity. They are to be a light to the world, quite different to the world. They are to be the salt of the earth. And so he starts teaching his disciples about being fishers for men. About sharing with him the kingdom of heaven and its proclamation. But before launching into this sermon over the next few weeks, which will teach us about how to live as the kingdom of heaven dwellers, which will teach us how to be the fishers for men, before we do it, notice the initial response to Jesus. 
and the crowds came to a man who could heal him. I believe the crowds will still come to any man who can heal them. But there's something bigger here than healing. Healing is just indicative of fulfilling the prophets, fulfilling the promises, fulfilling the coming of the kingdom of heaven in Palestine. The kingdom of heaven is bigger than healing. It's about justice and righteousness. It's about the judgment of God and forgiveness and mercy. It's about a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth, about the restoration of all things. It's about living a new way, living God's way. It's about Jesus being the king. There's bigger things than healing here. Indeed, healing in its popularity can even get in the way because they can miss the message. The message of Jesus is repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repentance is what Jesus was preaching for. Oh, sure, there was offered in it healing and mercy and forgiveness and pardon, but repentance is what was being called for. And repentance is what he is going to teach his disciples. Repentance deep and long and profound in the next three chapters is spelt out because if you live the way of chapters 5 to 7, you will live in a way that is completely different to the way you grew up to live. You'll live in a way that is completely different to the way everybody else is living, both in the 1st century and the 20th century. If you live this way, you'll be living dramatically and radically different, which is what repentance means. For it means stop living the way you are living. Turn around and live a different way. The character of this repentance is the character of the kingdom of heaven, which is why we need to study it so that we will conform our lives to the teaching of Jesus, to the preaching of the kingdom of heaven. But the heart of the response is repentance. It's to say, I've had enough of living my own life, my own way of being king of me. I'm now going to turn to accept the king of heaven. He will rule my life. We can study the Sermon on the Mount. We can analyse the Sermon on the Mount. Frankly, it's not even hard to memorise it off by heart so the next time Phil springs a, 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 a quiz on us, we'll get every word right. We can learn it in every translation, so whichever translation he springs it on us, we can still get the words right. But you will not have understood a thing in the Sermon on the Mount unless you respond with repentance. If you're not going to change the way of life, then the information of the kingdom of heaven is a complete irrelevance to you. It'll go straight over your head. You may learn it by heart, but you will know nothing of it. For the message calls upon us to respond in repentance. For some of us, that kind of response can be a very first time, can't it? For we've never actually turned our life over to Jesus and to God. For some of us, well, we have done that, but as we study his word more, we start to see other areas in which that repentance needs to be put into effect, other areas in which we need to repent again, again, here and there. I shouldn't point there. Here and there and there and here. For there are all kinds of bits of this repentant man that still need to repent.
And so the Sermon on the Mount will, for some of us, introduce us to the Kingdom of Heaven. And for some of us, will conform us more to true citizenship in the Kingdom of Heaven. But it is only as you are in the Kingdom of Heaven and conform to the citizenship of the Kingdom of Heaven that you can ever fish for other men. So fundamental to discipleship training is the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray for each other and for our coming months of study. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.